in the course of my life and my work, I read a lot. Uh, many of you read as well. But uh, every now and then, there, there I come across things that are truly unforgettable. I mean, in the sense that they just don't leave you and you don't even have to make a lot of effort to remember those things. One such unforgettable paragraph I came across many years ago in a brief pamphlet written by a man named Richard Roberts. And these are some extracts from that. He says, the evangelical movement in our country, he wrote about America, but I don't know whether it's all that different here, is characterized by an arrogance that is beyond belief. As God has been degraded to a being scarcely a half inch bigger than us humans, we have assumed gigantic proportions in our own eyes. In consequence of this, professed Christians have felt the liberty to neglect major portions of scripture and be virtually untaught in and unaffected by the long history of the Christian church. The solemn assembly has simply fallen into oblivion at the hands of a people too arrogant to know that their own corporate sins, especially those hard sins of pride, unbelief, and rebellion, have created a nation ripe for destruction. As soon as it becomes evident that immorality is on the increase and spirituality is on the decline, the biblically sound and spiritually lively church will not foolishly blame the world, but will immediately recognize its own complicity. The church must first repent. For the righteous judgment was not against the world, but against the church. Therefore, in times of spiritual declension and moral decadence, the great duty of every Christian is both to discover those sins that have caused the judgment and to put them away by that method which God himself has chosen, the solemn assembly. Corporate sin must be dealt with by corporate repentance according to divinely ordained methods. I don't remember all of that stuff, but I've never forgotten the central thesis. And so every year when I come to the beginning of Solemn Assembly, I almost always think about these verses and these, uh, these observations. But this time I was particularly gripped by these sentences. That professed Christians have felt a liberty to neglect major portions of scripture and be virtually untaught in and unaffected by the long history of the Christian church. And therefore the Solemn Assembly has simply fallen into oblivion. So today in this message, and twice again tomorrow, I'm just simply going to set before you much of that scripture. So that you will no longer be untaught, or unaware, and therefore hopefully will not neglect, and your life will not remain unaffected by the long history of the Christian church and the scriptures. In fact, almost 50% of my message today is just God's word unadulterated. My words have simply been chosen as an appropriate link to provide a context for those scriptures. And the reason for that is, if I have to persuade you about the importance of this and it's up to my words, I don't stand a chance. But God's word has the power to be able to both create desire and give some tracks and some direction for us to run on. So that's why I've entitled today's message, Why Solemn Assemblies? Any good reminder for those of you who are familiar with the practice and it's necessary for those who may have just come to our church in the last year or aren't yet fully persuaded. Now, in one sense, we can pray any kind of prayer, anytime, anywhere. The Apostle Paul, writing to Ephesians, says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, always keeping on praying for all the saints. So, in one sense, you can pray anywhere, anytime, any kind of prayers. You don't really need a whole lot of direction as to what to pray and when. But the Scriptures also talk about the importance of discerning certain seasons in which certain kinds of responses are more appropriate than others. For example, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, 
There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. And the Hebrew word translated season has exactly the same meaning as the Greek word kairos. And I have on many occasions uh, pointed out to you the difference between chronos and kairos. And chronos refers to the quantity of time, like we have so many minutes left for the service. Kairos, on the other hand, refers to the quality or the meaning of the time. And it is something we sense and therefore respond appropriately. And Jesus himself, from whom we take our cues when all is said and done, was very, very conscious of kairos and seasons. Read the gospel sometimes and you'll find on many occasions when people would ask him to do something, he would say, my hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And then finally, Father, the time has come. He operated very much not out of Kronos, but out of Kairos. And he also shows us very specifically the importance of discerning those moments when the Kairos calls for solemnity and not rejoicing. Like after his triumphant entry in Jerusalem, Lazarus had been raised from the dead and the people were going berserk, celebrating on Palm Sunday. We read these verses. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So it was just a tumultuous time of joy. And Jesus affirmed it. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So there's a time for rejoicing. But then it says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, his mood changed. He wept over it. And he'll tell you what. The days will come upon you when your enemies will dash you to the ground. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time, Kairos, of God's coming to you. Jesus discerned when the time of rejoicing was over and when it was time for weeping because the people were not discerning their right time. In fact, so serious is this issue of discerning the right times for solemnity as opposed to joy and levity. That in the Old Testament, there's a very sober passage dealing with that. The prophet Isaiah, I guess this would be the unforgivable sin in the Old Testament. The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear your hair out and put on sackcloth. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. And the Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. To be feasting and rejoicing when God calls for repentance and mourning is no light thing. And I suspect, as far as I can remember, it was sometime in early 90s, 1992 or 93, as far as I can remember, when the staff and the elders of this church basically came to a settled conviction that this first week of every year is one such kairos moment, a season for solemnity and a season for repentance. And the fact that it follows Christmas, which is a time of rejoicing, a time when we always, every year, celebrate God's faithfulness in providing for our financial needs, there's nothing inappropriate about that. Just like this in Luke's Gospel, a season for rejoicing and a season for repenting and solemnity. And every year that we've done that, every year in solemn assembly, and those of you who walked with us during those years, God continues to affirm to us the wisdom and the rightness of doing that. Okay, so you understand solemnity. Why assembly? Why do we all have to do it together? Why can't we just be left to do this in private for ourselves? But once again, 
Scripture is shot through with many, many instances where the leaders of God's people call not just for private time, but for corporate times of this kind of solemn seeking after God. The, the classic text is in Joel. Joel was one of the prophets for the southern kingdom of Judah. And as they were approaching exile to Babylon because of their sins, both of idolatry and immorality, as well as the neglect of social justice. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before the Lord. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders. So in the first instance, this call is very specifically directed to those of us who wear the mantle of leadership in the body of Christ. Pastoral staff, elders, those of you who have leadership positions, lay pastors. This is in the first instance addressed to you and to me. We carry the responsibility to lead our congregations in times like this. But nobody is excluded. So the next phrase says, And all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly or or solemn assembly. Gather the people, consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. I mean, it's interesting this reference to nursing mothers and children and the bridegrooms and bride. You know, in the Old Testament, the first year of marriage was so important that men were even excused from military duty so that they could stay at home and bless their wives in the first year. That's how serious that was, and even that is suspended at times like this. It's God's way of saying all the natural obstacles and excuses people may come up with for not participating in solemn assemblies doesn't hold at this time. Now, I'm not so sure in our culture, in our society like this, where uh, that it would probably work if every one of you brought your infants every night and two and three-year-old kids were running around cranky because it was late at night. I'm not quite sure that that would be the wise way to apply this scripture. But i tell you what it does suggest. It does suggest to us that you do not let these things become obstacles to your participating in solemn assembly. It, it might mean that if you uh, have young children at home, that you might want to consider alternating with your spouse. Have one of you come one night and one of you come the other night. It might be that in your marriage at this time you might discern that one of you needs to spend more time with God than the other. And so by mutual consent release the other person to come. It might be a particularly busy time at work. It is a call of faith to say, don't let that stop you. I've even known some people who would take holidays during times, at least one person in this church. He used to fairly regularly take his some vacation time during solemn assembly to be able to devote additional attention to that. that that's, so don't forget the, the details can be varying, but the principle. The principle is that this is so important. Do everything that we can to transcend all the possible obstacles and excuses that might come. Don't jump at the first ready excuse and say, oh, I guess I'm discounted. That's the mindset that Joel wants to put away from us. Did the people respond? Well, in in Scripture, it all depended on which king was in charge. If the kings were good, they responded, they even called for solemn assemblies. If the kings were bad, they weren't. Here are a couple, let me give you three examples of leaders who responded. One was King Hezekiah. And here's the kind of orders he issued. At the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king and from his officials which read, 
people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, that he may return to you. Do not be like your fathers and brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord. Do not be stiff-necked. Submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary. Serve the Lord your God, so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. The couriers went from town to town, but the people scorned and ridiculed them. So it's quite likely there might be some of you who might be tempted to respond like that to say, ah, what nonsense. Please don't. Nevertheless, some men humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered following the word of the Lord. And a very large crowd of people assembled in Jerusalem. So there was a skeptical minority. But God's hand was upon the majority to give them mind. That's what I've been praying for us. I've been praying that the hand of the Lord would be upon us as a congregation to give us a mindset to respond. Then sometime later, his grandson, Josiah, stimulated by a discovery of the word of God. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He goes after the leaders again. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people from the least to the greatest. So status is not an issue in this case. The kind of position you hold in society is totally irrelevant to these things. We're all in exactly the same position. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commandments, regulations and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. A solemn covenant renewal ceremony was part of that solemn assembly. But in spite of all of this, Israel continued to go on their downward spiral. They went into exile. Seventy years later, they came back, first under the leadership of a very godly priest named Ezra. And after Ezra had rebuilt the, the, the altar to establish the worship services, uh, he had to deal with some serious sin in the fellowship. That's so why he called a solemn assembly. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exile. That's pretty serious stuff, right? Within three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the twentieth day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of the Lord, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. They didn't like the weather, but it didn't stop them. Mercifully, this year we don't even have the snow to contend with. You see, when, when a group of people gather together and assemble, what that saying is more than one, two, three or five people, an entire body of believers is serious about doing business with God together. That's why the solemn assemblies are important. And by the way, I, I can't order you like a king. Hmm? I can't exactly issue a decree and say, if you don't show up, by the time you go back, your property is gone. And Jesus specifically said to leaders, you don't have that authority. But you know, I want to tell you a story, a very brief story. Several years ago, my wife bumped into a, um, a young lady who was uh, in this country illegally, a single parent, really struggling. But she had a, was a woman with dignity and didn't want handouts. So she was willing to work. And so we began to help her in various practical ways and help her regain her sense of dignity and stuff. But she, she was away from the Lord at that time, but she came back to the Lord. And if you've ever gone to the Swiss Chalet on Rexdale Boulevard, if you come out, you see that little church across, Mountain of Fire and Miracles Ministry. I don't know if you've seen, notice that. Yeah. She goes to that church. And New Year's time, New Year's Eve, you know how they spend New Year's Eve in that church? They, they fast and pray the whole night. 
And after that, sometimes the pastor calls them for a 21-day fast, including all the children. When Ansemi, her son, was a few months old, she would take him all night. She would teach them to teach him to fast. I said, what do people do respond to all of this? She said, oh, the pastor just tells us we have to come. I don't know. I'm not like him. I don't know whether he's right. I wonder whether he's closer to the heart of God than I am. I don't know. But I can't order you, but I'm pleading with you. Take this seriously. Show up. And let's seek God's face together. Now, as we do this publicly, I would encourage you to also use this week to practice some personal solemn practices. Joel called these solemn assemblies a holy fast. They were often accompanied by fasting. And fasting isn't just from food, although in the kind of society that we live in, it's probably the most obvious. But there's a whole lot of other things Very legitimate pleasures like food, television, surfing the net, reading good novels, your hobbies, whatever they may be. This is a good week to try and think about voluntarily fasting some of those. Now, why do we do it? It's very important to understand why. It has nothing to do with earning brownie points with God. Jesus gave us a very clear biblical reason for fasting. He was asked at one point why John's disciples fast and his disciples don't fast. How is it that we and the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. So fasting had nothing to do with obedience to rules and regulations. It had to do with hunger for the bridegroom's presence. When Jesus was there, nobody fasted. When he was gone, the church fasted. So that's the framework. When we deny ourselves, when we do without food, or when we do without any one of these other legitimate pleasures that I've mentioned, it is an act of faith. It is an expression of your desire for Christ. It is a way of saying to Christ, you are more than all of these things to me. And I am willing to dare to trust you that the gift that you will give to me and to give to Rexdale of your presence will give me far greater joy and pleasure than if I had continued to indulge in these perfectly legitimate pleasures over this particular week. Remember Hebrews 11:6. without faith it is impossible to please God and he who comes to God must believe that he exists and rewards those who earnestly seek him and that reward is none other than the presence of Christ himself. So it's not legalism but faith. And, and as you do, as, as you voluntarily refrain from one or more of these things, use the time, use the time in different ways. Use the time to read. Read the scriptures. If you're so busy you don't find time to read the scriptures. Release some time to pray and meditate if you don't have time to do that at home. And sit down with your family and have some holy conversations. Read a good book that will stimulate your faith. That book that's been sitting at your bedside and you haven't got to it yet for a while. These are all various options. But however the Spirit nudges you, ask Him. And we're not asking you to do anything that we as pastoral staff are not doing. One of the things we do, as I said, we cancel all appointments during this week. And rather than meeting just on Tuesday for staff meeting, we meet every day at at 1 o'clock to pray. During solemn assembly times. And I usually use this occasion for one or more of these ways of of, uh, fasting. To be able to come here with, with, with additional anticipation and expectation. So these are good times for us. These are all various dimensions of the solemnity that God is calling us to at this particular time. But whatever you do, we've, been, we've come out of ten weeks of believing God. It needs to be an expression of faith, not duty. 
is driven by daring to say God is who He says He is. God can do what He says He can do. I am who God says I am. I can do all things through Christ and God's Word is living and active within me. That's the fivefold stimulus behind becoming solemn too. Okay, now that you understand why solemn and why assemblies, what's the agenda here? So there's two agendas basically from Scripture. Repentance first, but because God does not call us to repentance just because He likes to see His children uh, breast beating and groveling, but because it paves the way for restoration. That's the second dimension of prayer. So let's take a look at those. A couple of models in Scripture again. I mentioned Ezra to you. When Ezra came back with an exiled people and rebuilt the altar, he discovered that some of the leaders of the community had begun to intermarry with the people of the land and once again pollute the holiness. Separation was very clearly defined biologically in those days as well. And this is how Ezra prayed. When I heard this, what had happened, I tore my tunic and cloak, I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice I fell on my face, knees and prayed. Oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God. Because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. But now, oh our God, what can we say after this? What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. He loved the law of God. He was an expert in the law. He obeyed the law. And his passion was to teach the law. What is he saying? We. Why does he say our guilt? That's another critical, important dimension of solemn assemblies. The repentance that we are called to do is called corporate repentance. You see, in in those days, God's people understood the concept of corporate guilt and corporate repentance. We live in such a highly individualistic society that we don't think in those terms at all. But they were only too aware of the fact that an entire community could be affected by the sins of a few people there. So when you come tomorrow night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, when we do repentance praying, I will be leading you in praying for sins and you say, well that's not me. That's okay. You're not just praying for yourself. Although you might be surprised how many of them do apply, you know. The time for searching our hearts too. But even if they don't, because there are some sins that we will confess that we don't, we're not guilty of. But we carry the burdens of others in our fellowship. As a fellowship, we carry the burdens of sins of other congregations. As a church, we carry the burdens of other churches in our city and the nation. But that's what corporate confession is all about. As I said, we're not very good at it, but that doesn't mean we can't make a start. And every time it comes to assembly, we get an opportunity to do that. And then, then we are free. Then we are free to also follow them with prayers for restoration and renewal. Because repentance, God wants us to repent just to clear the way for His presence. Remember, He said, pass for the presence of the bridegroom. The solemnity is to make the way for even greater joy. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, the superficiality of our joy may be traced in part to the shallowness of our repentance. But the depth of repentance opens up the way for a depth of joy in our lives as well.
Joel, that same man who issued that clear ringing call to solemn assembly, ends his latter part with these words. Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and reply to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterwards which was fulfilled eventually on Pentecost, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. That's his agenda. Not just to make us grovel. But he says you need to do that in order to pave the way for this. And so throughout scriptures in the Old Testament, you will find that prayers for corporate repentance are followed by bold prayers for God to show up. In, to such a people. That's the beautiful thing. You might think, boy, if I focus that way upon sin, the last person I'm going to want is God. Uh-uh. What's exactly the other way around? Huh? Now I'm ready. Now, God, we can hold you to your word. Let me give you an example of another man named Daniel. Daniel was in exile. And one day Daniel was reading the scriptures. And he was convicted by those scriptures. And he prayed. In the first year of Darius, Babylon had now been taken over by Medo-Persia. I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and in ashes. So he's alone. He's he's not a king. He doesn't have the authority to call assemblies. And so he starts praying this way. And then come the prayers of corporate repentance. And notice the we again. I pray to the Lord my God and confess, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant of love with all who love Him and obey His commands. We have sinned and done wrong. Daniel hadn't. If anything, he's shown as a bright and shining star. And yet, how does he confess? We. We have sinned. There's corporate repentance. And then he continues on for a while. And then comes the turn to the prayer for restoration, verse 17. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For our, your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Now that's bold, bold praying to God. And you know where he learned it? You know where he learned to play like this? He not only read Jeremiah, he read Isaiah too. (laughs) And Isaiah 64 prays this way. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Look upon us, we pray, for we are all people, your people. Your sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion is a desert. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire. And all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? And when I put all this thing together in, in the form of a diagram to help you, you see how scripture fuels prayer. So here's a man, Daniel, who's in exile, and we read about him in scriptures. And one day he's reading Jeremiah, and that scripture inspires him to pray, and so he prays. And another portion of scripture from Isaiah actually fuels his prayers. And we have this whole story in scripture. There's such an intimate link between scripture and prayer. Last week we just spoke on Psalm 1. And this week we're speaking about prayer. The link is perfect. 
Have you ever asked yourself why a book of prayer, the Psalms, opens with a psalm about the Word of God? If you and I were putting together a collection of poems on prayer, the first psalm would probably be a call to prayer. Instead, it was a call to delight in the Word of God. Because it's a very, very close link between the two. It is God's Word that sets the agenda. It's, a God, it's God's Word that inspired a man to pray. It's God's Word that fuels a man to pray. And God puts that whole story in the Word of God so you and I can learn to pray. And Jesus reinforced that link in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. And there's that intimate link between his word remaining in us and then we asking whatever we wish. Because you see, if his word remains in us, what we wish will be what he wants. His word will change and transform our desires to the point where we will be asking him for things that are in harmony with his heart and not just ours. And so scripture not only teaches us these things, it also teaches, gives us the content for that praying. And, and, that, and if I were to ask, answer in one sentence why we bother with solemn assembly, it's what Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It, it comes out of a conviction, at least that's my conviction, that if there's anything useful that is going to be accomplished for the kingdom in this church in 2007, God's going to have to do it. Nothing else would last, no matter how glitzy it looks. No matter how impressed the world may be with statistics and with buildings and stuff like that, it counts for nothing if it doesn't flow out of the life of Christ within us. And as John Piper said, prayer is simply the translation into a thousand words of one sentence. Apart from you, I can do nothing. So, so night after night, that's what we're going to do. We're going to find different ways to say to him, Jesus, apart from you, we can do nothing. Let me close with this observation. Now you might say, but you know, so many of these calls to solemn assembly uh, were, were in times when the people of God were in dire distress. But it was serious sins in the fellowship. We have, we've been experiencing God's grace. Not that we're not sinners and we're not arrogant and hopefully not. But we've seen God's blessing in so many ways. Look at all the testimonies we heard during the journey of faith. And you've told us today how God has been faithful to us in providing our finances. We hear testimonies of lives of people being changed. You've heard them on video testimonies. And you're going to be hearing testimonies the next three weeks and Alpha and whatnot. Well, so what do we need solemn assemblies for? Here's, here's what happened to one church that found itself in relatively good condition. So it's always a dangerous place to be. And they did a solemn assembly, and here were some results that came from it. Our congregation experienced a new freedom in worship and a greater acceptance of different music styles. Our worship services have expanded from 60 minutes to over 90 minutes just because the people want to worship longer. The church has also seen people come to faith in Christ, including people from occultic backgrounds. Two prayer meetings that were born out of the solemn assembly are still well attended. Our whole framework for decision making has changed. We ran out of space and called a 24-hour fast to pray about the challenge. More than 70 people participated. We're seeking direction from the Lord now before we act, and this is restoring trust in our leadership. So, we have no idea what God will do. But as I was praying this past week, I was reminded of something else that I read many years ago. David Bryant called concepts of prayer. He likened them to a university, a base camp, and a womb. <laughs> he said they are a university because you learn. 
They are a base camp because it becomes a new place from which we make advances for the kingdom. But more than anything else, the most dynamic image for me, he said, they are a womb. Because God conceives things. Is it any surprise there was October that we saw this explosion of faith? It was about nine months after Solomon assembly. I don't think these metaphors are accidental in Scripture. So anyway, that's why I'm asking you, come. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Block out these days. Tomorrow night, 6.30, regular service till 8 o'clock, and then Monday and Tuesday from 7.30 to 9.30. Wednesday we'll gather here and then do a prayer walk through the church. We'll be praying in different parts, different ministries. Thursday night, Upper Room Community Church will be here, and they will be leading us as we pray for our church plant in Vaughan. And Friday, which is the day, like last week, somebody from our small group said, I cannot be waiting for Friday. Because Friday is when we gather together and listen to what has God been saying to us here. So that's the journey that's ahead of us. As the worship team comes back and and leads us in a couple of songs to prepare us for uh, participating in the Lord's Supper. As you come to Him today, to feed upon Him. This is also fasting for the bridegroom's presence. He said, this is food indeed, this is drink indeed. Let the elements represent for us the fact that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God.